God, in his great wisdom and grace, has given to the church two ordinances, two commands that are to be observed by all believers in all places for all time. They are baptism and communion. And both baptism and communion center on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. It is the bottom line of what Christianity is all about. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In baptism, we read this. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life. So baptism identifies us with the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are put under the water, it symbolizes dying with Christ. As we are brought up out of the water, it symbolizes rising with Christ. And in that resurrection with Christ, to live a new life. That's what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We now have a new direction. We now have a new purpose. We now have a new goal. We now have a new aim. We now have a new desire to live for the honor and glory of God. Communion focuses on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have just read, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes, speaking of the resurrection and hope that we have of his return. The scripture says that as often as we eat this bread, we are to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection. That's what communion is all about. And when we think about Christ's death and resurrection, I want us to focus on what that death and resurrection achieved for us. And while we can talk of many different things associated with the accomplishments of Christ's death and resurrection, all of it can be encapsulated in the idea that through Christ's death and resurrection, fellowship with God and fellowship with one another has been restored. When we think about communion, that word communion is the word fellowship. And when we're celebrating communion, we're celebrating fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship one with another because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our theme this morning is that communion is a time to celebrate our fellowship with God and one another due to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians, we find that communion was not being observed the way that it should be observed. And the reason that it was being observed the way that it shouldn't be observed is because it wasn't manifesting the fellowship that was intended to be enjoyed. Notice verses 17 and 18 of chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So in partaking of communion, it wasn't profiting them. In fact, it was causing them harm. Why? Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. You see, that's inappropriate. That is totally foreign to what communion is all about. Communion isn't about division. Communion isn't about dissension. Community isn't about disunity. Community is not about one saying, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollo, or another, I'm of Christ. It's about unity. It's about, about fellowship. Verse 19, For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's their intention. But he's saying, that's not the Lord's, that's not communion. What you're doing, you're using a cup, and you're using bread, but that's not communion. Why not? Verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One gets hungry and another gets drunk. I think we could easily see how getting drunk would not be appropriate for the Lord's table. I want to focus on the first part of that verse. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. You're eating before each other. Some are going hungry. Some, by the time they get there, there's no communion. Last time we celebrated communion, I apologized immensely because we ran out of communion. There is nothing more foreign to communion than that. Because communion is about having enough for everyone. It's about fellowship. It's about being concerned for one another. That's not just a matter of politeness. Although manners do come out of a civility. Manners do come out of a concern for one another. But the concern here is not simply politeness. It's about a commitment to one another. It is the reason that we celebrate communion the way we do. We don't ask people to come up front individually and receive communion. The reason we don't practice that in our church is because we distribute the elements individually and ask you all to wait 
until everyone has been served. And once everyone has been served, then we partake together. That's what this passage is about. Of being concerned one for another. So this morning, I'm going to do something a little different, and that is that I'm not going to exegete this passage, per se. But I I want to take a fuller view. I I want to step back and look at the meta-narrative of Scripture, the, the big story that is contained in the celebration of communion. So I'm going to be looking at a lot of different portions of Scripture this morning. Please stay with me. But I trust that it will prepare our hearts as we think about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and what is accomplished for us. And what we are going to be focusing on is that the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has restored our fellowship with God and one another. You see, the fellowship with God and our fellowship with mankind needs to be restored because it was destroyed by sin. What is sin? Sin stems from a failure to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and sin is a failure to love others the way that we love ourselves. In the book of Matthew, the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus. They were trying to come up with something that they could catch him in. They were asking him tough and difficult questions. And so they came to Jesus and they said to him, Jesus, what's the most important commandment in the word of God? He didn't hesitate for a moment. Teacher, Which is the great commandment and the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, the duty of mankind is to love the Lord our God, with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourself. And everything else in the word of God is an explanation of those two ideas. How to love God and how to love our neighbor as ourself. That's what righteousness is. Therefore, what sin is, is a failure to love God with all our heart, all our soul and all our mind, and a failure to love our neighbor as ourself. At the very heart of sinfulness are two ideas. First, self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Where we make ourselves the most important entity. We are not to be self-centered, we're to be God-centered. God is to be the most important person in our lives. Sin is self-centeredness. And secondly, sin is selfishness. That is putting ourselves before others. That's why we wait. 
for one another. Sin is selfish. Why do we need to be saved or delivered from our sins? There are consequences to our sinful disobedience. There is shame, loneliness, and punishment, just to name a few. Because of our sin, our fellowship with God has been broken and our relationship to others are filled with heartache and misery. When we die, we are permanently separated from God. Let me unpack that for you. Because of our sin, fellowship with God has been broken. Prior to sinning, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. They heard the sound of his voice. They walked with him in the garden, in the cool of the day. In sinning, however, they forfeited that relationship with God. They hid themselves from God. In sinning, they failed to glorify God. Not simply in being disobedient, but why they were disobedient. Why did they rebel? God had said to them, you can eat from any tree of the garden, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But they failed to recognize the goodness of God. They failed to rejoice in all that they could eat from. Every tree of the garden. Just one you can't eat from. And they focused on the one tree that they could not eat from. And failed to recognize the goodness and grace of God in all that he provided for them. But then they began to focus on that tree. And the evil one came to them and said, has God said you shall not eat? Eve said, God said we shouldn't eat. God, then Eve added and said, yeah, we're not even supposed to touch it. Because if we do eat of it, we will die. The evil one said, you're not going to die. God knows that if you eat of that tree, you will become like God. Knowing good from evil. And the scripture says in Genesis 3, 6, and I quote, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She dishonored God by not believing God, not trusting God, not believing that God was concerned for her well-being. She viewed God as selfish. For the evil one said, God knows that the day you eat thereof, you will be like him. God doesn't want you to be like him. God is selfish. She believed the lie. So she attributed wrong motives to God. She dishonored him. And after they sinned, their eyes were opened. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loin coverings. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They were ashamed. It brought separation from God. They ran from God. They hid from God. And the result of sin in man's life is that we continue to run and hide from God. John 3.16, that wonderful verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Neither cometh they to the light. They don't want their sin exposed. So mankind runs from God. Fellowship with God is broken. Because of our sin, not only is fellowship with God broken, but fellowship with one another is broken. Adam and Eve now are going to have heartache and misery when together they were supposed to be one. Cain is going to rise up and kill his brother Abel. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to show you what sin does. How sin is destructive. Righteousness builds. Sin divides. Sin is harmful. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Why? Notice the reason. For men will be lovers of self. If you mark your Bible, circle that, asterisk it, highlight it, do something with it, because that is the essence of sin. Men will love themselves as opposed to loving others. And as a result of loving self, look at their behaviors. They'll be lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, won't solve their differences, malicious gossips, without self-control, brooders, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. All of that flows out of lovers of self. And then notice the last statement. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. See how that flows out of the first and great commandment. Love God with all your heart, but they are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Caring more about what we want than what God wants. And it's destructive. It's ruinous. It saturates our lives 
in our world. And it's why we live in such a miserable and scary place. Because people are lovers of self and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But God, in his love and mercy, reaches out to us. He invites us to have a new relationship to himself, a relationship that the Bible likens into a wholesome relationship between a father and a child. In this relationship, God loves and cares for us, and we seek to love, honor, and be obedient to him. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. This unique and precious relationship in which God provides for us and cares for us, and we serve him, honor him, like a child would his parents. And then we have a new relationship to one to another because all who believe in him are now brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, part of his family. How does Jesus save us from our sins? Answer, Jesus took upon himself the consequences of our sinfulness. Jesus makes this new relationship possible. Jesus, in absolute love for God and for us, unselfishly thought not of himself, but voluntarily experienced the consequences of our sinfulness through his life and death on the cross. That is, he took on himself our shame, endured forsakenness by God and others, and suffered the full punishment of our sin, which was deserved. All this was accomplished so that we would have an entirely new relationship to God and one another. Let me unpack that for you. How did Jesus bear the consequences of our sin? First, by bearing the forsakenness that we deserved. Sin separates us from God. And Jesus bore our separation. Matthew 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? because of our sin. He bore our forsakenness. He bore the consequences of our sin. Not only was he forsaken by the Father, but he was forsaken even by his own. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. He bore the forsakenness of God, and and he bore the forsakenness of mankind. And even his own disciples forsook him. Communion begins 
with a statement, in the night in which the Lord was betrayed, forsaken by his own, he dies. Jesus not only supports, Jesus not only bore the consequences of our sin, but also he supplied the righteousness that we lacked. The righteousness that we lacked. You see, what we had to bring to God was you were to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. When Jesus died on the cross, it was an expression of his love for the Father with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind. In the book of Hebrews, it says this concerning the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and why the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is far superior than the sacrifices of the Old Testament and why it did away with them once for all. Listen. Then I said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings, offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein, which were offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first to establish the second. Jesus manifested a redemptive love. The redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ was his voluntary death. No man took his life from him, but he laid it down of himself. He gave his life as an offering to the Father. As an act of supreme love. And that act of supreme love is given to us in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is praying, troubled as he thinks of going to the cross and of being forsaken by his Father in great agony, he prays and asks if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If there is any way for salvation to come other than my death and separation from you, please may it be added these words, but not as I will, but as thou wilt. There is the love of God with all his heart and with all his soul and all his mind. Not what I will, what you want. Not my pleasure, your desire. What you want. Jesus supplied the righteousness that we lacked in not only loving the Father, but in failing to love one another. Because Jesus loved 
his disciples loved us perfectly. In John chapter 13, we have the recounting of the Last Supper, the last meal that he ate with his disciples, that last Passover meal, which is where we get communion from. And that chapter opens with these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. To the end. To the end of his life. But more than that, it means ultimately. He loved them to the fullest. To the fullest. John 15, 13 says this. Greater love has no man than this, but that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus loved us supremely by giving his life for us. And in so doing, fulfilled all righteousness. For he loved us the way that he would love his own life. And he did not even withhold the giving of his life for us. That's the gospel. The good news is that Jesus conquered sin and death by physically rising from the dead. He ascended into heaven and was welcomed in the very presence of God the Father. In trusting in what Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection, we experience complete forgiveness from God. Our relationships are transformed. We enjoy a never-ending fellowship with God, both in this life and for all eternity. Instead of the selfishness that once ruled our hearts, we now seek to honor and serve God and to be a blessing to others. In short, we extend to others the love and forgiveness that we ourselves have experienced from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of Christ's death and resurrection, we enjoy a never-ending fellowship with the Father. John 17, 3. This is life eternal that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, There you may be also. Christ died and rose again so that we could be with the Father and with him forever and ever. Not forsaken. Not abandoned. With him. Forever and ever. That's why Timothy says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The words of Jesus. He said, any wonder the scripture says, therewith be content.
Not only are we going to be with God forever and ever, but we are going to be with one another forever and ever. And that is a cause of rejoicing and great joy. We've experienced a number of funerals lately. Great portion of scripture, Thessalonians chapter 4. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep. For if, those that, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that condition is crucial. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those also who sleep in Jesus, in Jesus will God bring with him. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds with the Lord to ever be with the Lord. Not just you're going to be with the Lord. Not just I'm going to be with the Lord. But we are going to be with the Lord. Our loved ones are going to be with the Lord. The fellowship is going to be established forever and ever without sin. And that means no division. That means no heartache. That means no misery. That means nobody stealing from one another. That means no selfishness. And no self-centeredness. For our minds and eyes are going to be focused on the throne of God. And we will worship him forever and ever. And that will be our joy. And that will be our delight. And that will be our peace. We will rejoice in the goodness of God. What is the essence of communion? 1 John 1, 3. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we proclaim in communion. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. So why did Paul cite eating before one another as a violation of the communion table? We get the drunkenness, but even such a small thing as eating before one another. As we wait for one another and partake of communion, it's not just politeness. It's a symbol and manifestation of putting other people before ourselves. That's to be manifested in many, many different ways. Paul says to the Corinthians, starts off by addressing divisions in the church. Chapter 1. Nails it right from the beginning. Some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Christ. Then for 10 chapters, he's trying to rectify that 
situation. And then finally, he gets to the communion table where he makes the application. He says, when you partake of communion, you're not observing the Lord's Supper. Why? Because of these divisions. These divisions. The unity of the Lord's table is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what's important to us. And because of the death and resurrection of Christ, fellowship has been accomplished with God and fellowship has been accomplished with one another. Paul demonstrates that the things that they were dividing themselves over, meat offered to idols, buying and selling, divorce, goes through a whole list of things. What was creating division were not those things. What was creating division was a failure to love God and a failure to love one another. It always does. Doctrine doesn't divide. Self-centeredness divides. When we're confronted with an idea that doesn't agree with our opinion, and then we get upset, doctrine doesn't divide. Music doesn't divide. It's the response that divides. The selfishness of having to have it our own way. That divides. And what unites us is not that we all share the same preferences or that we all have the same desires. What unites us is the body and blood of Christ. It's his death and resurrection. And when you keep Christ central, you have unity because that's what righteousness is. Righteousness is loving God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might, and righteousness is loving one another the way we love ourselves. Communion is an expression of that love. We're ready to go to the communion table this morning. The scripture says to us that we're to examine ourselves before we partake of communion. So let me just ask, first of all, have you ever trusted in Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, recognizing what he did for you and bearing your forsakenness? Forsakenness by God? For if you die in your sins... You will not be in God's presence forever and ever, but you will be banished from his presence. Not knowing bliss, but torment. And understand that the greatest torment of hell is not the physical torment. It's the absence of God. No one knows about hell. Because no one in this life has ever been forsaken by God yet, except Jesus. People talk about a hell on earth. They have no idea. But if you die in your sins, you will be forsaken by God. 
and you'll be forsaken by others. There's no hope of reuniting with God. There's no hope of being reunited with loved ones that have died. And I don't have chapter and verse for this, but it seems to me to be consistent with the whole idea that there will be absolutely no fellowship in, in hell. People have this idea that they're going to go to hell and have a party. I believe that people in hell are going to suffer alone and not even have fellowship, the camaraderie, the blessing of even being with other non-believers. For they will be forsaken by God and forsaken by mankind. Jesus offers us fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. Before we partake of communion, I ask you, search your own heart. Am I at odds with someone? Is there someone that I need to ask their forgiveness? Is there someone I need to reconcile with? Have I said something unkind to my wife, my child, my friend, my fellow believer? Am I harboring bitterness, anger? All that sin. Christ died to bring us together. And one day, we show forth the Lord's death till he comes. One day he's coming. And when he does, we will have unbroken fellowship with him and unbroken fellowship with one another. For there will be no more sin. No more self-centeredness. No more selfishness. Brothers, if you come forward, please.